Hey y'all, welcome to Footnotes in Witness. I'm Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. So we have been chatting about Jesus's crew, the disciples. Matthew, the tax collector, was an outcast of his own people, and yet Jesus chose him. Thomas's legacy of faith would be doubt, and yet Jesus saw value in him. Peter and Andrew were brothers. One was passionate and sometimes bombastic, and we don't know much about the other one. But Jesus chose to invite that family dynamic into his inner circle, so we can see it has value and importance, even if we don't necessarily understand it. So what have we learned about Jesus so far? And what does that have to do with our own witness? So in my experience, our connotations and expectations are the things that get in the way the most. So connotation is a big word, and it just means how we interpret a certain word or idea. So for example, my connotation of Texas is manners, home, hot biscuits, good friends, and the all-consuming heat that never quits, <laughs> except for when it lets you freeze to death for a couple of months. But when I moved to California, based on people's reactions, when I told them where I was from, I assumed that their connotations is a little bit closer to a horse wrangler, gun-toting, big hat-wearing, ignorant fool who says funny things. Biblically, when we see the word sober-minded, like in the text of 1 Peter, our modern connotation usually goes to something like Alcoholics Anonymous and liquor. But sober-minded literally means to be of sound mind, to be intentional and mindful. So our connotations can deceive us. When we hear the words, tell your testimony, I know some people's connotation is like a big scary presentation in front of people up on a huge stage telling all your scary secrets, hopes, and dreams, most likely to people that you don't trust and who are going to share all your secrets in detail given the first opportunity. Maybe you're scared of the judgment and the condemnation upon revealing that you weren't always living faithfully. You're basically hoping that your public display will prevent the church from kicking you out completely based on a recognition of your bravery. Now, just so it's clear, I'm speaking from the female perspective because that's what I am and I have the most experience with. But I have also seen the benefit of men telling their witness as well. My husband greatly benefited from a group of men who were honest and open and told each other their stories. Our home group, where I saw the most growth in people in general, was a co-op group. We all need community and no one gets a pass here. This isn't just for women. So what about expectations? Whenever I've spoken to others about testimony and giving witness, and I've been doing that a lot lately, like this is what I'm up to, I never hear, oh, I can't wait to learn how to trust God with this. Or I hope Jesus gives me the strength to be honest with my friends in a way that I haven't been able to do before. No, it's usually just, oh, I would never do that. Or I've been hurt before. Or how do I know people won't use it against me? I've had women tell me that their expectation of witnessing is to be betrayed and hurt. 
that to share their hearts with other women is to expose themselves to a level of betrayal only possible in circles of women, usually claiming to be Christ followers. And yet they'll gossip about you the minute you turn your back. These are unfortunately legitimate fears. These are things I've experienced. It happens for sure. I've been betrayed. I've been talked about behind my back. And yeah, gossip is hard and hurtful. And the church is made up of people, which means it's made up of sinners, which means it's probably going to happen. But that doesn't have to be our problem if we can learn to lay it down at the cross. Take Matthew, the tax collector. He was reviled and ostracized in his own community. He was cast out. Don't you think the other ministry members in Jesus's crew had a thought or two about him calling this traitor into their group? Jesus called Matthew from his tax booth. Jesus made it clear that he knew who Matthew was and what his profession had been. And we don't know if Matthew had just been waiting for the chance of release and renewal. Maybe that cultural abandonment had gotten to him and he desperately wanted to get out of siding with the Romans and collecting taxes. We don't know. His spirit in the moment, either way though, shows that Matthew dropped everything in his life to follow Jesus. He didn't sit with Jesus and talk about how the other members would treat him. He didn't say like, yeah, I want to follow you, but what happens if everyone gossips about me on the road? Like, how are we going to travel together? He didn't expect Jesus to protect him and have a chat with everyone about treating him nicely. Matthew's spirit trusted enough in this Nazarite Messiah to just get up and follow him. And if you're thinking he was an apostle, well, this is one of the many reasons why I wanted to start with this study. And this is one of the reasons I say disciple, because that apostle word has such a lofty connotation to it. Disciples are just students, and so are you. Matthew didn't start by following Jesus and then writing a book of the Bible. He had to learn. He had to earn it. He had to be in the group for a while. And these guys, they didn't have anything special. They didn't have knowledge or skills of unattainable value. What they had was Jesus. And that's the only thing that made them different. They had Jesus. And if you follow him, so do you. Peter, sure, ended up giving big sermons and writing letters that would be in our Bible. But he didn't start there either. When we first see Peter, what is he doing? Matthew 4.18 gives us a glimpse of what his life was like. Jesus shows up and they're fishing. Peter and Andrew are just doing their job. Jesus called them to go with them. They immediately laid down their nets and followed him. There was no discussion of who was going to take care of their extremely valuable nets and boat. There was no discussion of plans or preparations like, where are we going? Jesus just told them in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 4, come, follow me. And then he said, I'm going to send you out to fish for people. That's so weird. Like, what does that mean? How does that apply? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, we see that Peter had a mother-in-law. Does that mean he was married when Jesus called him? Like, did he have to go home and explain to his wife why he left the tools of his trade on the shore, followed a stranger around for a while, learning how to fish for people, and he also intends to continue following him? 
Like, are, are you married? <laughs> what if your spouse came home and said, hey, honey, I know we spent a long time getting a loan for that boat so we could have a commercial fishing license and that was going to be how we were going to raise our family. Well, <laughs> it isn't that Peter is an exceptional human being. It's that Jesus Christ was an exceptional human being. Peter and all the rest started small. They gave their lives over to the trust and protection of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, isn't actually a small thing at all. It's kind of a huge miracle. But they followed and they learned. They hung out with Jesus and then they talked to people. They told people about what they were learning. They witnessed miracles and then gave reports to others about what they had seen. They walked with Jesus in his times of trial, in his persecution, and in his death. And then they talked to people about it. They saw Jesus risen again, alive and walking. And then what did they do? Yeah, they talked to people. You think you're worried about sounding crazy or dramatic? The thing I have seen is that when the story, even if it's unbelievable, is just too good not to share, you won't actually care what people think about you. So it's a hard question, but are you ready? Is your hesitation to be a witness less about your reputation and more about the value that you actually place on God's influence in your life? When we see Thomas, we saw loyalty and a desire to learn and to follow. We don't have long letters or sermons from Thomas. Maybe he was more comfortable with the smaller witnessing, the intimate conversations with a few friends. We don't know. We do see Peter laying down some serious sermons and writings. And both of these guys were in Jesus's crew. Both were valuable and both are necessary. If standing in front of a crowd and witnessing scares the daylight out of you, that's okay. (laughs) Some people can overcome that and some can't and maybe you will someday, but maybe just not right now. Either way, it's all right. I'm actually pretty scared to speak in public. (laughs) I remember doing my first talk in front of my youth group. I was probably 14 or 15. I was so scared. The thing is, every time that I've spoken in public, I do it because I'm passionate about the subject matter. It's worth going through all the like achy feelings and upset stomach and not sleeping all night because of what I want to share. I've actually thrown up before (laughs) before doing a public talk. If you have a talent, sometimes it's good to know that any accomplishment in it is due to the Holy Spirit guiding you. I've said that many times. I'm always super impressed when I can actually speak in public and people understand me and I make sense. (laughs) That's totally the Holy Spirit because I'm actually shaking inside the whole time, sometimes shaking on the outside. So if that's you, you're okay. Me too. That doesn't mean that we're off the hook though. So when there's witnessing involved, there are three roles to play and you are at least two of them. The first one is be big stage brave. The second is tell intimate small stage stories. And three, be the one to trust. Maybe a big stage isn't meant for you. That means in your circle of friends, in your small groups or with family members, that's where you share your story. That's where you witness. 
sometimes people that you think are big stage speakers are actually just as scared as you. It's just in different ways. I would rather talk to like 10 people or a thousand people. It's the really small, intimate gatherings of 35 that make me the most anxious because I can't relate to everyone. I can't make a connection like I can in a small group. And a really big crowd, you just get lost. Some of my favorite public speakers have told me and confessed that they don't have a lot of close friends. And some of them said it's because two people is just too intimate. It's too close. Each environment has its brave leaders. You don't have to do both. So if it's big stage or small intimate moments, both characters should be a person to trust. Every single one of us can be the person that others can trust. There's a huge gossip problem in the church. Now, I'm from the Bible Belt, which is home to the covert prayer gossip. This is where somebody calls somebody out, basically in gossip, in the form of a prayer. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it sounds something like this. Okay, y'all, let's pray for Karen. Heavenly Father, you know our sister Karen is in trouble. She's been seen with other men that ain't her husband, and we know she needs your guidance to stop sleeping around town. Right? (laughs) Like, I've heard that in public groups before. Those details that are shared in a prayer is really just gossiping. Now, that's outright gossip. That's a little bit easier to spot. The unintentional gossip is a little bit harder to spot. So let's say a friend tells her story in home group and she has had some childhood trauma and she's just really starting to deal with God about that. So later on, maybe you guys are all in choir and she snaps at the choir director and she doesn't normally do that. So you lean over and explain that she's having a hard time because her and God are working through some childhood trauma that she had. Now that soprano who you're sharing that story with, she wasn't in your home group. She wasn't there when that story was told. This is gossip also. We have to be intentional about what we say to whom, especially when we know the intimate details of others. So I just started asking people to give me a minute to think about what I'm saying. So if I'm in a conversation with somebody and they're asking me about something and I know that there's a potential for gossip, I just say, hold on, I'm just, I want to make sure that I don't gossip and I want to think for a second about how not to betray this trust. I've had really good reactions to that, actually, because then they say like, oh, I don't, I wouldn't want you to gossip either. Thank you for taking a minute. So even if there's like an awkward silence in the conversation while I'm thinking about how to communicate, I think it's best for both parties because now both of you know that gossip is not the point. So sometimes it can be hard to think about how to communicate the point that you're making without revealing any details. So that friend at choir, you can either just not say anything to your pew mates about her behavior, (laughs) or if you really feel the need to assuage the moment and somebody maybe asks you like, hey, what's going on with her? You can say, you can pray for her. Um, She's going through some stuff, but her home group is actually walking with her in it right now. It is not your job to share the details. Now, if you're the soprano that's asking, your job at that moment is not to ask. Don't press for details. That's the other half of the gossip. It takes a person to share gossip and it takes a person to hear it. It takes two. 
this is where I haven't had the best reactions. <laughs> if somebody starts telling me something and I say, hey, I don't want to hear that. That sounds like gossip. That usually comes out sounding like an accusation. And it can be really hard to get out of those conversations when someone's trying to gossip with you. You can either try and change the subject or just say, oh, that's okay. I don't need to know. Be the person who doesn't betray the trust. Be the person that others can rely on. So maybe you're big stage brave. Maybe you're small stage stories. Either way, you're going to be the person that is trustworthy. That's not going to betray the trust. Start with yourself. And you have to tell yourself your story. That may not sound like it makes a lot of sense, but just like the gospel, especially if you've been um, in the church for a while or you've been around this culture, sometimes we forget. You know, it's that we go through life and we've got kids and we've got work and we've got stuff that we've got to take care of. And we kind of forget the miracle that is the crucifixion and redemption and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's the same with your own story. Even when God does something miraculous in your life, 10 years later, you don't have all the same feelings about it because time has passed. And sometimes you need to remind yourself. So start small, just like the disciples. When I first was freed from the shame and guilt of my story, I was so excited to be able to say it out loud that, well, I came on a little too strong, too fast, and too often. When making a brand new friend in that same day, I might have told them about the worst night of my life, my parents' craziness, counseling through trauma, and of course, all the redemption. But yeah, it's a bit much. <laughs> I have actually had two friends who are of the same intensity that I am, and they didn't run away screaming at my avalanche of intimacy, but that was rare because it is intimacy. That's why it feels so hard to share it. It is your story though, and you're the only single person who can tell it. Even if other people were there, you're the only person who can give your perspective. So you can start by writing it down, or you can start by recording it. So over many episodes of Footnotes, I hope to detail to you all the different ways that you can start writing and telling your story, the logistics of how to be a witness. Hopefully every fourth episode, so at least once a month, we'll have an episode just like this that's dedicated to being a witness, where we might talk about something in particular. So some of those things might be how to tell your story that involve other people, because it's your story and you can't tell other people's details, right? And you don't want to ruin relationships. Another topic that we're going to cover is how to write it out, like on the computer or on a sheet of paper, exactly how to do that in a way that makes sense to you. Another thing that we're going to talk about is how to bring it up in your home group or your small groups at church so you can help foster this culture of honesty and vulnerability. So for today, for this episode, we're just going to kind of start with thinking about hearing other people, how to be that person that is trustworthy, and where to start for yourself. I want to encourage you that this is a long process. I actually write my testimony over and over and over again, because as time changes, and as hopefully I'm mature <laughs> and get to know God better, so does my story and my perspective on it. And sometimes I've 
been led to tell my testimony that has to do with a very specific event. Sometimes it's the whole life story. It can change from time to time. So the main goal of that, though, is to be able to look back and to see God in your life. And this is a big, scary word called introspection. And it's really difficult. (laughs) Introspection literally means to examine or to observe your own mental and emotional process. And by the way, this is way easier to do with other people. Does anybody have a sibling? I bet you can point out exactly their faults, where they come from, and what event made them that way. (laughs) It's a lot harder to do for yourself. So when you're first starting, what you need to do is have that hindsight. And so it's easier to start with the events that have already happened than to start with an event that you're currently in. So a great place to start is just how you came to the Lord. Did someone tell you about Jesus? Did someone bring you to church? Maybe in this particular season, you actually haven't done that yet. And you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, but you're uncertain. You're unsure. That's good too. That's where you can start. I have found a few easy ways to kind of like get started, depending on your sense of learning and personality, it can look different. So mostly writing. Yeah, if that's intimidating to you, um, that's okay. Record a note in your phone. You can use a voice memo or your notes or whatever Android people use. I don't know what it is, but there's a way that you can record on your phone. And you only need to remember one question. You don't have to write anything down. This is all you ask yourself. Where was God? That's it. Where was God? Think back on your life and then answer where you saw God. So when I was a kid, I, you know, did this and I saw God. Or when I was a kid, I grew up in church, so I saw God all the time. Maybe it's, you know, looking back, I didn't actually come to know Jesus until my late 30s, but I can see how God protected me while I was in college. Doesn't really matter. It's just where was God? And then there are going to be some times when you think back and you don't really know where God was, but you know how you needed him. You know how you want to see him in those moments. And that's where you start. Like this event happened. This is where I see God or this event happened. And this is where I haven't seen God. And this is where I would like to have seen God. It'll feel kind of awkward at first, but when you listen back to it, I bet you will be amazed at what you hear. It comes easier as you just keep doing it. So there are a couple different ways if you want to stay organized through this task. So once again, you can write it down or type it out or do a voice memo. But one way is to make an organized timeline. So keep yourself focused on the timeline starting in childhood. And so depending on your age, you can you know block that up into five-year segments or 10-year segments, whatever makes sense to you. And you're going to answer the same question. Where was God? In my childhood, where was God? In my teens, where was God? In my late teens in college, where was God? In my early adulthood, where was God? My 30s, 40s, and so on. That's one way. Organized timeline. Another trick is the special moments trick. Now, you may not think in linear timelines, but maybe you think in snapshots of memories that stick out. Now, you can write these down or do a voice memo, same apply. But you would say, this event happened, and here's where I see God. Or here's where I would have liked to have seen God. 
And that means you, you could say this event of having my children, because that's the easiest thing that I can think of, or my wedding day. And then maybe you say like, oh, yeah, I broke my leg when I was seven. And here's how I see God in that. So it doesn't matter that it's on a linear timeline. Those are more like snapshots. So just start with that. And then give it a week or so. Honestly, give it time. <laughs> Read or listen to it yourself. Make notes. And here's the most important part of this process. Pray. God wants you to share his story in your life. And it is right and a good and joyful thing to invite him in on that process. But you need to invite him in on that process. Pray throughout it continually. Pray whenever you start writing it down. Pray whenever you're letting it simmer for a week. Pray whenever you go back to reread it. Now, after you've done that, if you feel up to it, you can ask someone to read it or listen to it also. But I would say, ask a person who loves Jesus and loves you. And if you're worried about trust, say that up front. It's okay to set expectations. If this whole thing makes you want to run for the hills or go take a nap, that's okay. To me, this feels like a free fall. So what I mean by that is like my relationships and my reputation and what people think of me, all of those things are perfectly still water. It's beautiful and peaceful, and it has taken some effort to make it that way. And then my story, being a witness, is like a drop of rain falling. There's nothing I can do to make that drop not fall into the water. Once it starts, there is no stopping it. There is nothing I can do to stop the ripples that will form once the drop hits the water. There is no control over the ripples, how far they go, how big they get, and what they will disturb. But the fall is just the beginning. So much more can happen, even when I have no control. It's like that dream, you know, you're in bed and it's peaceful and it's warm and it's comfortable. And then all of a sudden, usually for no reason, you fall. My stomach drops and I jolt upright in bed. You're no longer safe and warm and comforting. But falling is just the beginning. When you learn to trust God with his story, with your feelings and your reputation, the freedom that comes from that is like falling to fly. The weightlessness stops being frightening and becomes a place of freedom. The weight of guilt and shame falls away. When we tell these things, when we give them to Jesus Christ and His light shines on it, the redemption that He offers strips the evil one from His weapon against you. And it takes the teeth out of guilt and restores you to the loving Father. So I urge you, trust God. Give in to the fall. Because falling is just the beginning.